I heard some voices and that was awesome. For those of you who don't know, Hosanna was known to be a, 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 a phrase or a term for to save. And um, as Jesus came in um, to Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday, the multitudes were shouting, oh, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. They thought he was there to rescue them from a physical enemy. But he's not. He was here to rescue us from ourselves, from the sin, from the sin that caused us to fear. The sin that meant that without a redeemer, without a savior, we were sentenced to death. So that in mind with the song that you just sang, would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this beautiful morning. Lord, thank you for another day to breathe, another day to learn about you, another day to learn to submit to you. For you are good, and you are holy, and you can change us, and we praise you for that. Lord, we ask right now that as Jalen comes up, Lord, that, that um, her message is speaking words of your truth. Lord, and help for all of us to open our ears and open our eyes and our hearts to see things as you see them. As you have shown yourself to us, help us to see that. And as we can rejoice right now that you are, Jesus, you are our Savior, and we praise you for that. And we thank you. And we know there's so much going on in this world and we pray, and, and those are concerns for all of us, but Lord, I pray that you will comfort our hearts and give us peace and also the courage to stand with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Lori. Thanks, guys. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Dion. Um, Thank you again just for joining us today. Um, Lori explained it perfectly that the song that we were just singing, we were singing that song for a particular reason, because of the lyrics, because of the lyrics that say Hosanna. Um, today is Palm Sunday, and you know, if, if we've been in church for many years, we've, we've probably heard Palm Sunday, we've heard of Holy Week, we've heard of Passion Week, but if we're new to church or new to Christianity, we may not really quite understand what Palm Sunday is, what it means, why is this a big deal, and, and really, what is the big deal? Um, because for a lot of us, just in a normal everyday situation, for most of us, we're looking at this weekend as the fact that we know next weekend is Easter. We know next Sunday we will be celebrating Easter, however we celebrate it. So for us, a lot of what this weekend and this coming week entails is preparation for that. Um, whether we're, you know, still buying some goodies for the kids or, you know, families coming over, we might be doing some last minute shopping. I get to do some grocery shopping, um, you know, for family dinner. And so we're, we're prepping for, for the celebration of what Easter is. And so with it being Palm Sunday, this is also the same, this is also the same for us, but in a different sense. 
Um, and we're going to take a look at the time that Lori had mentioned about when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and what the preparation there was, was taking place before, before he went to the cross. Um, Palm Sunday is the day that marks the beginning of Jesus' final week on earth. And during that time, there were many events that took place. Um, many things that um, Jesus did, he, there was a lot of stuff that took place as he rode into Jerusalem um, for that final time. And so what, it, what Palm Sunday is also referred to, for, that you may have be familiar with, is called the triumphal entry. It's this, this entry into Jerusalem, because for his disciples, um, this day was going to be a day unlike any other. This was going to mark a new, a new future for the Jewish people. Um, this is going to be a very important day. And so we see that in Matthew 21, it says that um, the disciples had gone and they had got, as, as Jesus commanded them, they had went and got a donkey and colt, just as he had told them. They sat him on them. And as he was riding into Jerusalem, the people were spreading their cloaks on the ground. And some of them were taking palm branches off of the trees and spreading those on the ground. And if you've ever, if you've ever watched a movie where a king is coming into a town or coming into a castle, they kind of roll out the red carpet. This is a, an entry fit for a king. And so this is what's, this is what's happening um, they're, they're doing all of this. They are um, shouting Hosanna, which, as Lori said, means save. It mean, Hosanna means Lord save. And so you could imagine all of the excitement as Jesus is coming in. It's like they're chanting, save us, save us. And so all of this is going on. And so what, what's happening at the same time is as they are doing this, as they are, as they are, awaiting the, the arrival of their long-awaited king. He's finally come in to, to um, take his place. They are also at the same time fulfilling the words of the prophets who hundreds of years prior in Zechariah and then also noted in the Psalms where they are saying the very same words, where they are telling, behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation humble and mounted on a donkey. And so they see that he, by virtue of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. And that they're also saying in Psalm 118, Lord, we bless you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so all this fulfillment is happening. See, God, during this time, um, for the Jews, not only is Jesus coming in, as their long-awaited king, but a lot of the Jews, what they're doing is they're coming into Jerusalem for Passover. They're getting ready to celebrate the Passover, and the Passover for them was an appointed feast by God, which was a commemoration, a memorial feast for the time that when he rescued his people out of Egypt, when they were under the oppression of Pharaoh, they were slaves to Pharaoh for many, many years, and he was just, he was horrible to them. And so they cried out to God, and God rescued them. And if you're familiar with the story of Moses and the Pharaoh, God had sent all these plagues, you know, 10 specific plagues in order for Pharaoh to let the people go. But the 10th and final plague was the plague of taking the firstborn. And so at kind of the final straw, when Pharaoh refused to let the people go, God's final plague was that he was going to take the firstborn children, the firstborn of, of the people, whether, you know, it, whether it was 
the Egyptians or even the Hebrews, but there was a way to be able to be passed over. His requirement was to sacrifice a lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and to put it on the, the lintel and the doorposts of their home. And when the angel of death would come through and see that blood, he would pass over that house and the firstborn would not be taken. And so, of course, for the Jewish people, um, uh, worshiping the God of Israel, they, they obeyed this. And actually, many of the Egyptians, having gone through all of the plagues with them and seeing that, well, you know what, being on Pharaoh's side didn't always work out too well for them, <laughs> um, they, they actually did the same thing. And so there were several, several Egyptians who had done the same thing, and their firstborn was saved. And so what God did was he told Moses to tell the people of Israel, after he brings them out, he says, I want you to have this celebratory feast. Do it in the, in the first month of the year. So for the Jewish people, this is actually their new year. And it, they celebrate the Passover by doing the very same thing. And he gave them specific instructions on how to celebrate this. And it's all actually laid out in Exodus 12. Um, you can help yourselves when you go home and read all of that. Um, but to this day, to this day, Orthodox Jews are still celebrating the Passover meal. And so at this time, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday, all of the Jews, all of the people who are in Jerusalem, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have come into Jerusalem. So imagine for a moment a town approximately the size of Ridgecrest in a week's time becoming the size of Lancaster, right? You'd be like, I'm going on vacation somewhere else. <laughs> So it's, you know, the rooms are full. All this stuff is going on. And so now, they, you know, looking back on their heritage, having been oppressed for centuries, enduring captivity for hundreds of years, this is their time. Their time has come. Woohoo! We finally got it. Jesus is going to come, and he is going to establish his kingdom, and he is going to hosanna. He is going to save us. The tables are going to be turned. But before we continue going down that road, let's, let's rewind a little bit just to kind of just kind of set the scene and help us understand. See, before Jesus comes into Jerusalem this very special day, he's spent about three years in ministry. He's been preaching the kingdom of heaven. He's been speaking in parables. He's been healing the sick and the blind, casting out demons forgiving people's sins, confronting the religious, many of the religious leaders in their hypocrisy. He's chosen his disciples, the 12 that he would send out to continue on his gospel message and teach others to do the same. He's taught with them. He's lived with them. He's told them about his future. He's told them three times now that he is going to have to die. He's told them about what is going to happen to them after he does. And, of course, they didn't really quite understand really what he was talking about. You know, they're all excited. He's here to come set up his kingdom. Surely, Jesus, you must be joking <laughs> or you must be mistaken. But now they're traveling to Jerusalem. He's telling them about our future. But now they're traveling to Jerusalem. They're all going to celebrate this Passover feast. This is something Jesus would have done and did do with his family his entire life as well as the disciples. And so this Passover this Passover is going to be a little different. The town, like I said, is in an uproar. For some, the excitement is the promise of a new future. And at this point, 
they, what they thought was going to happen is that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom as an earthly kingdom and overthrow the Roman government that was currently over them and oppressing them. Fun fact, this year, um, Passover actually happens on our calendar year as Good Friday. The church, uh, the cat, okay, Dion, <laughs> say your words properly. The Jewish calendar and our calendar, known as the Gregorian calendar, they're a little bit different. So it's off by, I think, maybe a day. But Passover actually start is Good Friday this year. And um, so anyway, this little nerd nugget for you. Um, but so for the disciples and for the Jewish people, this is their moment. But for other people in this group, there's a lot of, this is a mixed crowd. So for others, namely the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, they're actually in fear of, of losing their status. They, you know, they've never really liked Jesus very much. He was a dangerous guy as far as they were concerned. He was very popular with the people. He was, you know, he was teaching them. He was always challenging the, the um, religious leaders' authority and what they were teaching them, like I said, confronting them. So really, they just kind of wanted him to kind of just go away. They just wanted him to, to go away. And now for the Roman government, of course, this was quite a nuisance. I mean, you could imagine, like, if Ridgecrest did have something where all of a sudden we became the size of Lancaster, what RPD would be thinking. <laughs> Ridgecrest PD would be like, quick, we hire all the people. Come, they're crazy. Okay, so never mind. So the Roman, so the Roman government, really, I mean, they had a big job on their hands. They didn't know what was going to happen. However... As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, hearing the crowd, here's what the religious leaders say. They're hearing the crowds shout, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees tell Jesus, teacher, tell your disciples to be quiet. Don't let them say this. And Jesus says, but if they don't say it, the very rocks will cry out. Because the truth cannot be suppressed. Creation itself declares the glory of the Lord. And if, if the disciples weren't going to say it, the rocks were going to do it for them. And so when we look at this, I have to wonder, you know, as they were saying Hosanna, as they were saying all of this, did they recognize what was happening? Did they recognize the words of the prophets? Did they realize that they were part of a picture that started from the moment God created the world until the time where they were in right now. And so whether they recognized it or not, what becomes clear over the week as um, Easter comes, you know, is coming to us, and, and this is a, a challenge for us today, is the expectations of what everybody thought Jesus had come to do. See, we already know that the, the disciples thought he was there to establish an earthly kingdom, but this was not the king that they were expecting. And so when we look at the expectations, this is kind of what we want to focus on today because that's one of the unique factors of Palm Sunday is the misunderstanding of what Jesus really came to do. And it does just simply boil down to expectations. And when we think about that, we all have expectations, don't we? I mean, we have expectations when we get married, what marriage is going to be like. Doesn't always work out like we expected. I mean, think marriage is, is a very different thing. We have expectations when we become parents, what being a parent is like. 
You know, we always build things up in our mind of what we think, and it, sometimes it's based on misinformation. Sometimes it's just simply what we were taught. It, we come up with our own ideas. Even as we, over our lifetimes, as we walk into a church or as we start to explore Christianity, we have certain expectations of what we think is going to happen, should happen. How should it sound? How should it feel? What should we say? What should the people be like? We have expectations. And so even when it comes to our ideas of Jesus and what he came to do, we can have the same challenges. As a kid, um, I shared with you guys before, my mom and dad, had, had I had the privilege of being able to go to Christian school my entire life. But really, the only thing that I knew of Jesus at that time was that Jesus loved me and he came to die for my sins and I could go to heaven. That was it. So everything else was built on kind of me trying to put put the puzzle pieces together. And the challenge with all of this is if we're not careful and we simply go with our own expectations, we can honestly become disappointed or even disillusioned about Christ and his church and Christianity, or maybe even um, walk into following a false pattern of Christianity that could be dangerous or worse even lead us into hell. And so as we look at that Palm Sunday, as, as Jesus is coming in and the expectations, he knew what was happening. He knew what the people were thinking. And so, you know, he being part of God's incredible plan throughout creation all through time until he came into this world and comes into this very moment, we see that as he draws near the city, um, this picture, although obviously it's a new picture of Jerusalem, is taken from the temple or from the Mount of Olives, which is where Jesus would have been sitting at this point overlooking the city, overlooking the city that he absolutely loved dearly, where the temple of God was. And he looks at the city and he weeps over it. Now, mind you, the word weep here is more of a sobbing, a wailing. This is that, if you've ever had one of those gut-wrenching, full-on body sobs, that's what we're talking about. Because he looks at this, this, this town, his town, the town that God chose, the, the temple that, that was there for them to worship him, that he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Because they just kind of, they missed what was happening. So many people missed what was happening. And so knowing that in just a few short days, his time on earth would be done, he is just simply heartbroken. He's heartbroken over the fact that he knows that in approximately 40 years' time, and he tells his disciples this, that that beautiful temple that they're looking at will be destroyed, completely destroyed, down to the dirt. And, and he, he sees this, and he knows it's coming, but the blindness and the hardness of God, hard, hard-heartedness of God's chosen people, their coming judgment, and the fact that they just missed what he came to do. They had the scriptures in their hands, and they did not see him for who he really was. And so they were looking for salvation. When they cried, Hosanna, they, they were on the right path. They were looking for salvation, but they were looking for a different kind of salvation. They were looking for more of a political salvation, not necessarily a spiritual one. And so this Passover, like I said, this Passover, this coming Friday, there still is going to be many Jews, Orthodox Jews all over the world that are still waiting for their Messiah to come because they do not, did not and do not believe that Jesus Christ was their Messiah. We, our Sunday school class just got done watching um, a DVD called Christ and the Passover, 
And it explains the whole purpose of the reason why the Jewish people celebrate the Passover back from the story of Exodus. But the, the, the gentleman who teaches it brings it into how Christ actually fulfilled the Passover and how the parts of what is called the Seder meal represent so many incredible things and how it, their Seder meal points to Jesus now, but they don't see it. And so the fun thing is, is that Calvary Chapel, this Wednesday on the 13th at 6 p.m., they're going to be hosting um, a Seder meal at their church. Um, anybody is welcome to come. And so you get to actually kind of immerse yourself in the experience of what the, the people of, of the Jewish people, of God's people are still celebrating today and just the powerful impact and really what it means for us now and how Christ actually fulfilled that Passover. But one of the things about it that really interests me is that one of the elements of the Seder meal is the egg. There's a hard-boiled egg. I don't know if this is where we get Easter eggs. I'm not even going down that road because it probably doesn't work. But they have an egg. And the reason they have this, this egg is because it represents the fact that the temple is destroyed. And the, the, they call it the Hagiga, Hagiga, which was what they actually called the sacrifice that they would take to the temple. But when the temple was destroyed, there was no more, there was no more way for them to have the sacrifice. There was no longer a way for them to sacrifice. And so now they're not even allowed to eat lamb. They're, they're not allowed any of this. So the egg represents their, um, their sorrow over the fact that there's no temple, there's no sacrifice. Oh, but there was. We get to learn about that more next week as we go into Easter. And so he's looking at Jerusalem and weeping. And to be honest, I think at this point, Jesus still weeps over his people. I believe he still weeps over his Jerusalem and the church today. I think, you know, this, he, he, churches are filled with people who see and listen to message after message. And they read book after book, but they don't understand it says, he says that they see but do not perceive and hear but do not understand. And it's not a, it's not a matter of intelligence. It's not an intelligence factor. It's a, it's a condition of the heart. Because we can, if we're not careful, we can be very much like the religious leaders of the time and have pride be the thing that kind of blocks us from being able to see and understand. Or, or maybe we have developed a form of self-righteousness that blinds us to the truth. This is just things to be cautious of. And so as, as you know, we look at this and understand that that Palm Sunday, so many people miss the reason why Jesus came. We need to be certain we understand the reason why Jesus came. Because does he love us? Yes. Did he come to die for us? Yes. So that we can spend eternity with him? Absolutely. But there's so much more. And so um, we want to make sure that we can examine our expectations. And thankfully for us, we don't have to try to rely on our own um, guesses or understanding why he came but he actually tells us himself. So we're going to take a look at a few of the reasons. It's not all of them, but a few of the reasons why Jesus came. First of all, we know that, that God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to us in order that we might not perish, but have eternal life. That Jesus came to the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But the reason Jesus did this is he says that he does as the Father commands so that the world would know that he loves the Father. Does he love us? Yes, but he loves his Father, and he's going to obey his Father. 
And so God's love for his creation and his people compelled him to offer a path back to him through Jesus. And Jesus' love for his father um, compels him to obey. So we establish that first, is his love for the father. But in his love and in, in God's love for us as he sends Jesus to us is that Jesus' reason for coming was to fulfill the law. We would talk about fulfilling the law. Um, see, for thousands of years, the Jewish people followed God's law, the law that was given to Moses after they came out of Egypt. We know them as the Ten Commandments. Um, and so there was a lot after that, a lot of really cool, neat things if you're a fact geek like I am and you like to do the research, you can look into other chapters of Exodus and, and uh, Deuteronomy where God lays out all kinds of fun things. But we know the majority of the Ten Commandments. And the problem is, is that for the Jewish people, you know, this, this is high regard. This is God's very word to them you know, handed down to Moses for them. So for them to follow the law was huge. But the problem was, is at the time, the religious leaders often accused Jesus of trying to teach the people that they didn't have to obey God's law, that he came to nullify it. And Jesus himself tells us he did not come to abolish the law, but fulfill the law. But in the fulfillment of the law, what it was that he was doing is trying to help them understand that the law of God was about love not legalistic rules and beating people over the head or just forgetting how to love. And so he says that the law really is, is that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind. And that, that's the first and greatest commandment, but the second is like it, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that was one of the things that they weren't, that they weren't practicing. And so Jesus coming to fulfill the law was simply... Jesus affirming everything that they would have known and learned in the scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures. And sad to say, even today, um, there is coming out more and more, even in some of the more famous Christian leaders and pastors now, that it is not uncommon to hear about uh, people kind of disregarding the Old Testament as valid or even relevant to us today. That Jesus, by his coming, just basically said, meh, you know, that's great, but we don't really have to worry about that, which is absolutely not true. Jesus' fulfillment was a direct affirmation and pointing to the law of God and that he fulfilled it through his life and his death and resurrection. So he came to fulfill the law, but he also came to bring a sword. You know, and this one's kind of this one's a little, well, sometimes they can all be, they're all going to be challenging to us because, you know, if, if whatever our expectations were coming into Christianity, the, this is certainly going to challenge us, which is good. Um, we, sh we should be challenged. Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I have come to set man against his father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I don't know why it doesn't say father against son-in-law. Maybe y'all just go fishing too much and y'all, you know, it's all good. <laughs> but it's, so the hard concept in this is that when it comes to following Christ, there is a cost. There's always a cost to following him. It's a cost, first and foremost, of us setting down our, our lives to follow him, our, our selfishness and our pride. But oftentimes what happens is that as we come to know Christ and as our life begins to change, 
the light of Christ in us begins to expose the darkness in others. And, you know, nobody's trying to do it on purpose. It's not like we're walking around trying to, you know, put the spotlight on where we think other people are doing wrong. Some might do that. That's not a correct way of doing it. But by very nature, if we are allowing God to transform us from the inside out, the Bible tells us that the light does not comprehend the darkness. And it does cause conflict and division inside of families because biblical truth will often do that. And so, you know, it's not that Jesus came with the intention of destroying families and relationships. That's not it at all. It is just the fact that the light, the darkness does not understand the light. And so we know this because I know that there's a lot of folks here who understand the pain of losing friends after you've become a Christian. It's not because you didn't want to hang out with them anymore, but because as Christ's light through you, shone through you, they started feeling guilty about themselves. We don't even have to say anything. And even if we beg them to just, no, that's okay, I love you, sometimes they just push us away. But there's a lot of times we even have to actually leave certain relationships because we cannot be with them anymore because they are not healthy or good for us as Christ followers. And we do that in a loving and compassionate way. But this is what we're talking about when Jesus comes to bring a sword. And of course, oftentimes the sword is simply like when he would confront the religious leaders in their misunderstanding of God's word. So he, get, he did come to bring a sword in that sense. But he also came to serve. Jesus came to serve and to show us what it means to be a Christ follower. See, Jesus never demanded to be waited on hand and foot. In fact, he's the one who did the waiting on hand and foot, even washing the disciples' feet, you know, before he went to the cross. Um, it's, it's more of that understanding that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so even as Christians, you know, this is, this is the life that we are supposed to live. It is, the, it is serving other people to show Christ through us. So this isn't a matter of just doing good works, but it's the motive behind it. The fact that we love the Lord so much and that when we, when we come to truly understand him, our natural inclination is to serve other people. And so his, his point was to show his followers how to live as he did as humble servants, showing the heart, the very heart of God. Now, of course, during Palm Sunday, this would have been completely counter to what the disciples thought was going to happen because the disciples thought Jesus is going to be king and I'm in his group. <laughs> I am so lucky. We're going to, one wanted to be on his right, one wanted to be on his left, and they thought that they were in like Flint, and that just did not happen the way they thought. So he comes to serve and to show them, and they will soon see what this servant Christ, this serving Messiah meant. And through that, he also came to give abundant life. See, when we think of abundant life, again, based on our expectations or our concepts, we might think longevity, lots of good things, plenty of food, wonderful home, but with Jesus, it wasn't to make life easy. The life abundant he was speaking of wasn't to make life easy. And sometimes we have to be careful because if that's our expectation when we become a Christian, that it's God's job to fix all of our problems, 
or fix other people for us, <laughs> um, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna have maybe some issues, you know, some because honestly, some of the false doctrine that is is prevalently taught right now, um, things like prosperity gospel, word of faith. There are many who believe that just God wants us happy, God wants us rich. God wants all of these good things to us. We can just speak things into existence, speak good things. Um, we got to be careful of that kind of stuff because the abundant life that Jesus gives us transcends our circumstances. It is an eternal abundant life. It is, it is the, and it's rooted in the abundance of God. So like as Paul says, and I think he says it perfectly, abundant life oftentimes comes in the moments when we are on our face in the mud. Now, that might not really make a whole lot of sense to us, but Paul explains it perfectly. He says that God's grace is sufficient for us because God's power is made perfect in our weaknesses. Oh, how true that can be. If you've ever had the privilege, if, if you are, are striving to know and follow Christ, and if, if you're exploring Christianity, this might be a little bit of a noodle baker for you, but those moments when we're struggling the most in our relationships, maybe even physically. Um, I know mom won't care because I don't know where she's back there somewhere. Um, <laughs> I shared this last night. I know most of you guys know my mom just recently had shoulder replacement and her, expect, her expectation was in two weeks time, she was going to be back to work. Two months later, <laughs> it didn't work out quite as she thought, but you know what? In her weakness, God can be, God's power can be perfected because it's in those moments we learn, we grow. We have to trust in him in ways that we never knew we had to. We had to lean on his strength instead of our own because aren't we just sometimes so pleased with ourselves when we think, I am so good, I can do this by myself, like a little kid, and you know they can't. God's like, Psh, let me help. And so he allows us these opportunities, but that's where we come to abundant life. And so when we can get to the point, like Paul says, that we can boast in our weaknesses, when we are happy about not being so self-sufficient, that the power of Christ can rest in us, when we're happy to be there so God's power can be seen through us, that's when we are getting to that point where we truly understand why he came. And so finally, and we'll, we'll wrap up with this part, I'm going to try to go through this quickly, is um, the fact that, yes, Jesus did come to Hosanna. He did come to save us. In fact, he tells us himself, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Well, and this is great news for us, but it also might be a little bit hard to understand because we live in a world where there is incredible emphasis placed on self self-worth, self-esteem, you know, self-identity, you know, just all of these things, building up ourselves, putting ourselves first. So sometimes it's hard for us to see ourselves as lost. And plus, we also have to understand that the word lost really doesn't necessarily mean like misplaced or wandering aimlessly. It can mean that we've wandered off. But in this exact sentence, the word seek means, um, or the word lost means destroyed to eternal death, um, somebody that is going to perish. And so this is not simply misplaced. This is an eternal big deal kind of lost. 
And so this is what Jesus is saying, that he came to seek and save. And the word save means to rescue, not to help out, not to give good advice, but to actually rescue. Imagine for a moment a person in the middle of the ocean, unable to swim, who is drowning. They are going to die if somebody does not rescue them. And that rescuer is the difference between life and death. This is what we're talking about, the difference between life and death. And so for us, understanding our condition that without Jesus, we are lost, condemned to death, unless we ask him to rescue us. And do we understand and do we even recognize that we are lost Apart from Christ, we are lost. And sometimes, even if we've sat in a church year after year, we can still be lost. And so one of my favorite stories to kind of help us understand a person who truly understands their lostness and being rescued, um, we don't get to hear of him much. A little guy named Zacchaeus. He's more often saved for children's ministry. I kind of like Zacchaeus. It's kind of short and to the point. And I so did not mean that penny, but it just worked out for me, didn't it? (laughs) Short and to the point. Zacchaeus, okay, so let's just uh, real quick on this. The story happens in Jericho just before Jesus comes into Jerusalem. So he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's coming through Jericho. There's throngs of people around him. He's passing through. Everybody's following him in. And so as he's going, there's a a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. Now, mind you, Uh, He was Jewish, and so to be a tax collector as a Jew meant you did not have many friends in your Jewish community. You were working for the other side. And so he was not not favored by his own people. And so, so he's a Jew who holds a job for the Roman government. He's considered detestable among the Jews. He probably, his only other friends might have been other tax collectors, Um, But he would have learned the scriptures, as all good Jewish boys would have. And so he's seeking to see who Jesus is. He's he's hearing that he's coming. He wants to see who Jesus is. Um, He's looking around to see him. But because of the crowd, and because he was very, very short, he couldn't see Jesus. So he makes a decision. He climbs up a sycamore tree so he can see what's going on. Now, he's excited to see Jesus. Why? I'm not entirely sure. Um, maybe it's because he heard of all the wonderful things Jesus was doing. Um, maybe it was because he knew Matthew. Matthew was another fellow tax collector who had turned Christ follower. We don't really know. But whatever it was, Zacchaeus' excitement and passion to see Jesus was so much that he had to overcome a physical obstacle in order to see him. And so he climbs a tree. Now, I'm sure most of us have long gone past the tree climbing days, Um, but for for Zacchaeus, he took a risk. He climbs this tree, probably risking some personal embarrassment. Um, Maybe he figured he had nothing to lose at this point, but what he's demonstrating is a zeal for for finding Christ, pursuing Jesus, trying to figure out who he is, and a childlike faith that is so necessary. And so he climbs into this tree, and Um, Jesus, well, Jesus' word said that unless we turn and become like children, we can never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Zacchaeus gives us a really good example. Please don't climb any trees. If you fall out, ooh, I don't want to hear about it. Um, (laughs) so So when Jesus comes down the road, he sees Zacchaeus up in the tree, and he's like, Zach, come on down. I want to come to your house. 
And so Zacchaeus hurries down and he receives Jesus and look what happens again. All the people, this mixed bag of crowd of people watching this begins to grumble because clearly Zacchaeus was not well liked and they are appalled that Jesus is going to go hang out with yet another notorious sinner. Now, I don't know about you, I'm a notorious sinner and Jesus came in to hang out with me. And there's probably a lot of us here who could say the same thing. And we are so glad. And there might have even been a few people that grumbled about it. I don't even know. But the thing is, is here's Zacchaeus. And so he, he goes to, um, Jesus comes to his house. The people are grumbling. And Jesus tells them, he says, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so, and, and this is where we see with Zacchaeus that um, he understood at that point, without even being told, what it meant to be lost and the need to be rescued. And this is what Jesus does, because how many times is we hear and we hear about Christ and, and we, see what's, we see what's going on in others' lives, what Jesus does is he exposes our need to repent. He shows us our sin. And so when, when, we see, when we take a look at the story, it's like, what did Jesus see in Zacchaeus? I mean, he saw something in him. Maybe it was his willing heart. Maybe it was the fact that he saw that Zacchaeus did have a broken and a contrite heart, a repentant heart. It says that God does not reject a broken heart um, or, or can, a, broken in, ugh, a broken heart. And so Zacchaeus, being so overjoyed with all of this and understanding this, he tells Jesus, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have defrauded, now you know he knew he did. <laughs> so if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This is what's called the fruit of repentance. See, he didn't ask a lot of questions. It wasn't that, well, if I give you this, what are you going to give me? Or what, what can I do here instead? He just simply responded. He came down from the tree. He responded with full rep repentance. And when we think of the word repentance, we've got to understand this is not just feeling sorry for our sin. It, the definition, definition is to change one's mind, to look at it a different way, and to that sin now it's, and it's an abhorrence of sin evil. In my terms, it, it's almost a disgust, but really, it should break our heart. The fact is, is that when we look at his response and, and how he does this, is the, our sin should absolutely break our heart and our willingness to do something about it, to change, to turn, to repent, to restore, whatever the case may be. So Zacchaeus was fully aware of his sin and, and to give back more than, than he was taking because this is the way true repentance happens. It bears fruit. It is not a work. It is not works-based salvation. It is a changed heart that understands what it means to be rescued. And in humility and out of love for Christ, we change. And so Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. So that day... Now, mind you, this is before Christ died. Salvation came to his house because of his repentant heart. Um, because the truth is, there is no salvation without repentance. We can think we're saved. 
We can believe that Jesus died on the cross for us and loves us. We can ask for forgiveness of sins. But true salvation comes with true repentance. The understanding how lost we are. Otherwise, we might knowingly or unknowingly have a false salvation, a selfish salvation, one that is wrongly motivated. And repentance is also not simply a one-time act. It is a lifetime of, of getting rid of the old ways, the old habits, the old nature. The, clo- the more we walk with Christ as he matures us, we become more aware and more sensitive to our sin. Again, the Apostle Paul tells us it's a matter of putting off of our old self, the old ways, the former manner of life in which we did things. Instead of arguing with our kids and our spouse, but to stop and, and start to practice patience and how to speak kindness and love and, and go to a resolution and solution, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God. That's what it means. Repentance is active. It's, it's physical. It's everything that comes out of us because of a love for the Lord. And, and it's not just mental. So this Palm Sunday... Today, and as we go through the week leading into Easter, as we get prepared, as we're cooking ham, or apparently I've signed up for fried chicken, (laughs) the understanding of please make sure that we know where we are. You know, because there's a reason why this is so important. Again, Palm Sunday kicks off um, what is known as Holy Week. one of the main things that Jesus did for his disciples before he was crucified, um, part of it, and again, it's found in Matthew chapter 24. I would absolutely recommend read the entire chapter, but one of the things Jesus did is he sat on, uh, at the Mount of Olives and overlooking Jerusalem, and he's looking at the temple, and the, the disciples were so proud of their temple, and, and that's all good, but Jesus is looking at it, and he's like, look, This is not all going to stay the same way, in essence. And he's telling them about the future. And so naturally they ask him, what's going to happen? When is all this going to take place? And so he says that there's going to be signs, signs, things to look for, things that we need to be looking for. He's talking about then and now. What is the coming of the end of the age? And Jesus tells them, be careful. Be careful no one leads you astray. There's going to be so many people have and will continue to be in our lifetime who are false Christians, false pastors, false Christs, and they will lead many people astray. And we will hear of wars and rumors of wars. (laughs) Interesting, hmm? Um... Don't be afraid that these things are taking place because this is what has to happen. Nation against nation, famines and earthquakes and all of these things. But he says these are the beginnings of birth pains. And so, of course, naturally, they're hearing about this and they want to know when this is going to take place. And so he tells us, he says, you know, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels. Jesus himself does not know. Only the Father knows. And here's kind of the interesting thing, and I think what we need to take to heart for the rest of us. If you're familiar with the story of, of Noah and the ark, when God told Noah to build the ark, it was because of the sin in the world. God looked on the world and he saw only evil intentions of the people's hearts all the time. But he wanted to save. He wanted to rescue. And so through Noah, he rescued a few people and he had them build an ark because he was going to send a flood 
Now, mind you, the ark took about 75 to 100 years to build. So Noah is building this ark, and generations of people are coming and going. And as is the days of Noah, so will the coming of man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, they were celebrating holidays and birthdays. They were going to work. They were getting married. They were having babies. They were doing what they do. We're going to lunch after church. We're going to Walmart. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware. Why were they unaware? It's not because they didn't know. It was because they did nothing about it. It happened just like that. And the, came, the flood came and swept them all away. And this is exactly what's going to happen. I'm not doing the whole pre-post-trib rapture thingy. That's a whole other message, and we'll let Bill do that. <laughs> the point is, and the point Jesus was making, is be prepared. Be prepared. Be prepared. Luke talks so much about the lost, the kingdom of heaven, and people who are lost, and being prepared for, the, for his return. Because Jesus is going to return. But we don't know when. We don't know when. Um, I'll just end with this quickly because I know we, gotta, we have to be done. Yesterday, I had the privilege, if you could say that, of doing a memorial. Really sad, the young man was 30 years old. That's my kid's age. That is way too young. But this young man had a heart condition that he knew about. And he knew his time was coming. And in fact, he kind of ended it the best way possible, I suppose. He spent time with his family they were down south at Knott's Berry Farm having fun with his kids. And he died in the hotel room, 30 years old. Now, did he make a profession of faith before that time? I don't really know. I know he heard the word. He had grown up in church. What he was doing with it after that point, I don't know. But we don't often get the gift of knowing when our time is. And so Jesus is telling us, be prepared, be prepared, be prepared. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, thank you that you give us everything that we need, not only to understand who you are, but to recognize that we need to be rescued. There's so much going on in our worlds that, that, that we need salvation from. And like Lori said earlier, mostly ourselves. But Father, we thank you for your gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And as we come into the celebration of Easter next weekend, maybe we can take this week and really just spend some time thinking about who you are and why you came so that we can be prepared. So we thank you for all of that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.